Welcome to the Beeson Podcast, coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University in Birmingham, Alabama. Now your host, Timothy George. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. Dr. Smith and I are here today to introduce you to a great sermon by the late James B. Torrance. Of all the people I think I have met in my many years of working in theological education, I responded as much to the heart of Dr. James Torrance as anyone I've ever met, a wonderful theologian, but a pastoral theologian. That comes across in this sermon called The Triune God of the Covenant. What are we going to hear, Dr. Smith? I will say to our hearers, those of you who have ears to hear, hear. Listen very carefully uh, to this preacher-theologian. Uh, the occasion is our Reformation Heritage Lectures, and his title is The Triune God of the Covenant. Um, it's, this title was actually given in his very last sentence uh, in the sermon. The text, he doesn't have a particular text. He's canonical. Um, significant distinctions, Dean George, very important. When you say canonical, you mean the whole Bible The whole Bible, text. absolutely, okay. absolutely. Uh, he makes significant distinctions between, or distinction between, evangelical repentance and legal repentance. That's important. The covenant God and the contract God, that's important. And he cites people like John Calvin, who says that faith and repentance are our response to the covenant God of grace. I appreciated his uh, treatment. He canonically treated um, salvation history, redemptive history throughout. Uh, he reviewed the Old Testament and New Testament, New Testament covenant, covenants even in church history and in uh, the political and religious history in the life of the church. Another key distinction in, in terms of extending this covenant and contract God is that he continues to say that covenant is unconditional. A contract is based upon mutual conditions. So forgiveness really is love in action in his own words. Logically, he progresses throughout the sermon by treating three thoughts about God's covenant and unconditional love that leads to repentance. One, God's love is an unmerited love. Two, God's love is a reconciling love. And three, you and I are summoned to love and forgive one another. And he uses to biblically buttress or support that the story of Zacchaeus, uh, who, uh, was entertained, who entertained Jesus and is called uh, a son of Abraham when Jesus comes to his house. This is how he closes. He says, the story of the Bible is the story of how humanity has tried to turn God's covenant into a contract. He says, you see, I'm God. The triune God of love is a covenant God, not a contract God. I think that's one of the most profound thoughts I've ever heard about God, and I appreciate it very, very much because my response is simply, I worship you as a result. You know, uh, Scotland is known for producing great preachers, and James Torrance is in that tradition. It includes James Stewart and Absolutely. other people we've listened Absolutely. to on the podcast. Well, let's listen to this sermon by the late Dr. James B. Torrance, called The Triune God of the Covenant, yes, sir. given here at Beeson Divinity School in 1998. One of the significant words of the Bible is the word covenant. We read about God making a covenant with Abraham, that covenant being renewed at Mount Sinai. We read about a covenant between David and Jonathan. David makes a covenant with the elders at Hebron when he becomes king. 
And Jeremiah speaks of a day when God will make a new covenant. The time is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with Israel and Judah, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. And in the New Testament, Jesus is presented to us as the mediator of the new covenant. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, a very significant word in the pages of the Bible, but also a word that's had a great history, uh, political and religious history, in the life of the church. For example, after the Reformation, the the word captured the imagination of French Huguenots, English Puritans, Scottish Covenanters, in their struggles for justice and liberty. In 1638, the Scots made a national covenant to preserve the Reformed faith in Scotland. Five years later, in 1643, they signed the Solemn League and Covenant with English Puritans to seek a covenanted uniformity of doctrine, worship, and practice in the three kingdoms. And that same year, the Parliament appointed the Westminster Assembly of Divines to fulfill that remit of the... And and the word covenant was clearly a key word in in the, the discussions and the struggles of that time. What then do we mean by a covenant? Well, there are different meanings of that word, but one basic fundamental theological meaning is that a covenant is a promise in which two people or two parties bind themselves to love one another unconditionally or a bond in which God binds them to love one another unconditionally. The word covenant was brought into the English marriage service in 1547 and been largely retained ever since. When a bride and a bridegroom come before a minister, he says to them, do you promise and covenant to be a loving, faithful, and dutiful husband and wife? And mutually, they commit themselves unreservedly to one another in love. And then the ring is given. As a token of the covenant into which you have entered, this ring is given and received, and by the sign you take each other to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till, till death do you part. What does all that mean? You've promised to love one another unconditionally. When I was married, I did not promise that I would love my wife on the condition that I had enough money to support her, or on the condition that she kept good health, not even on the condition she behaved herself. I promised a lover, and there's no such thing as conditional love, and that is enshrined in this great biblical word, covenant. Or to take a different example, let us suppose for a moment, here are two neighbors who have the misfortune to quarrel with one another. No doubt guilt on both sides, things go from bad to worse, and then perhaps one side takes out a libel action against the other. And then let us suppose there comes a point when one of the parties comes to their minister and says, will you help us effect a reconciliation? Every minister rather dreads that because he knows he's liable to have his fingers burnt one side of the fence or the other, but he goes and he listens. And then there comes the point where he says, listen, you must be willing to forgive and forget the wrong that's been done you. But so often back comes the reply, well, I'll forgive him if he gives me a written apology. And the moment you hear that big word, if, you know there's no forgiveness. And then the minister says, listen, you must be willing to forgive and forget whether or not 
your neighbor gives you that apology because only when you mutually forgive one another unconditionally will there be any real reconciliation. You remember how once Peter said to Jesus, Master, how often do I forgive my my neighbor a wrong turn? Seven times? No, said Jesus. Seventy times? Seven times. Unconditionally. You see, forgiveness is love in action. And there is no such thing as conditional love. And that is what is enshrined in this biblical word, covenant. Now, it's precisely that that makes a covenant so different from what we call a contract. Now, again, what is a contract? Now, again, there are different meanings of that word. But basically, a contract, I take it, is a legal relationship in which two people or two parties bind themselves together under mutual conditions. I might make a contract with a builder that if he builds me a house according to such and such specifications, then I'll pay him so much money. And the payment of the money is conditional upon his satisfying the terms of the contract. A legal relationship based upon mutual conditions. Now, no doubt in law, certainly in Scots law, which is based on Roman law, a covenant and a contract mean the same thing. We've used the words interchangeably. You can give your money to the church or a charitable organization by a deed of covenant, we call it, which means a contractual arrangement with the fiscal authorities that if you give so much money, there'll be so much remission of income tax. Or again, we've talked about the marriage contract. Now, it may be that in law and in political history or a common usage, a covenant and a contract mean the same thing. But in the Bible and on a Christian understanding, they are very different. As Jewish scholars constantly remind us, the God of the Bible is a covenant God. He is not a contract God. God has made us to live together in covenant with him, in covenant with one another. That's the inner meaning of the Christian gospel. God is love. And God has bound himself to humanity in covenant love in Jesus Christ. And in love he's bound humanity to himself in covenant love in Jesus Christ. And Christ sealed that covenant with his blood upon the cross. And nowhere is this more perfectly acknowledged than at the Lord's table when we come together in loving communion with God and with one another. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Now, this thought that the God of the Bible is a covenant God and not a contract God was the great message of the Protestant Reformation of Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, uh, over against the medieval sacrament of penance, where the concept of a contract God lay behind many medieval Roman doctrines. So, for example, during the Reformation, John Calvin, in his institutes, drew a very important distinction between what he called legal repentance and evangelical repentance. Now, what did he mean by that? He was thinking of the medieval sacrament of penance. Legal repentance was the kind of view that said, repent, and only if you repent, if you're sorry, if you confess your sins, if you make amends, if you satisfy conditions, then alone can there be absolution, and God will be gracious to you, and forgive you and accept you, as though God needs to be conditioned into being gracious by what we do. Well, you see, that was the attitude to repentance in the medieval sacrament of penance, the Roman confessional, the concept fundamentally of a contract God that came out of Stoic thought. 
knows the reformers. In the New Testament, it is the other way around. It, forgiveness is logically prior to repentance. The New Testament teaches a doctrine of evangelical repentance, not legal repentance. God does not need to be conditioned into being gracious. See, God is love. And there is forgiveness with God our Father that he might be feared. And because God is love and because there is forgiveness, he sent Christ to bear our sins in his own body upon the cross long before ever we were born. He's spoken that word of forgiveness, and now you and I are summoned in faith to receive that word of forgiveness in repentance. The Reformers said that faith and repentance are our response to the word of grace, the covenant of grace, the word of forgiveness. They are not conditions of forgiveness. And the work of the Holy Spirit is to enable us to hear that word of forgiveness, to hear the word of the cross, and to receive it, to receive in faith, in repentance, and gratitude, in joy, that word so freely spoken. The Bible teaches a doctrine of evangelical repentance, not legal repentance. Because you see, the God of the Bible is the triune God of grace. He's a covenant God, not a contract God. And the discovery of that is the secret of peace and joy in believing. Let me therefore leave you with three brief thoughts about the love of God our Father as revealed in Christ upon the cross. The love that leads us to repentance. Well, first of all, God's love is an unmerited love, as we say. God's grace is unconditionally free. It's not considered conditioned by considerations of worth or merit or race or class. God's love is covenant love. That's why the Reformers spoke about the covenant of grace. You see, if we ask the question, why does God love us? Why did Jesus go all the way to the cross? The only answer can be he does so because he loves us, not because we are better than anybody else, not because we deserve it, not because we fulfill certain conditions. No, he loves us in spite of the fact that none of us deserve it. And that's the inner meaning of the cross. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus comes to be the mediator of the new covenant. Two years ago, I was back in Australia on a three-month lecturing, preaching tour of the length and breadth of the land, and there took place a great tragedy called the Port Arthur Massacre. I don't know if you heard about that here, when some uh, man went to mock and shot dead some 30 people. And it caused a great concern across Australia. A few months earlier, we'd had a similar tragedy in Scotland called the Dunblane Massacre, when a, a man went into a school a, a room where there were 15 five-year-old kids and shot them dead. The outcome of that was at home, all private handguns are now against the law in an attempt to try to curb them. But when this Port Martha massacre took place, it, it interested me because some six years earlier, I had been in this place, Port Arthur. Now, Port Arthur is a peninsula on the south of Tasmania, a beautiful peninsula, where in the early 19th century, there was a convict settlement, you know, a, a penal colony, where often, you know, convicts were sent out to penal colonies in Australia or Tasmania. And when I was there, we were told the story of the place. 
that those early convicts in that penal colony had to quarry the stone to build their own prison and also to build a very large church. And the whole thing is in ruins now. But we were told the, the philosophy behind the building of that church. It was so designed that when the prisoners were marched into church on a Sunday, they couldn't see one another. They could only look straight ahead and see the chaplain. And the philosophy behind the building of that church was this. You are in a penal colony, and only if you accept your penalty as your penance will you ever get to heaven. Can you imagine? Medieval castigatio of the worst. Those prisoners hated the chaplain, they hated the church, they hated God, and no wonder. The contract God at its worst. Now, you know, I've had three extensive tours of Australia and taught demon courses out there and examined Australian theses. And one of the great differences between Australia and the United States, if I might say so, is that where by and large America is a very religious nation, whatever all that might mean, Australia is a very secular nation. And I believe that one of the main reasons why Australia is so secular, it early on rejected a, that kind of religion. Way back in the 1790s, a man called Samuel Marsden, an evangelical Anglican minister, was sent out as the, first, the chaplain to the first shipload of convicts to Australia. He became a minister in Sydney. He would preach on a Sunday. And on Monday, he was a magistrate ordering people to be flogged. He was known in Australian history as the flogging parson. Well, you see, they went deep into Australian culture, that concept of religion and the contract God. Uh, and they rejected it. And I think right to reject it. What Australia needs to hear is that God is the triune God of love and of grace. Suppose those chaplains, they're probably either Anglican or Roman Catholic in that, in that Port Arthur church, <clears throat> had said to them, God is love. God loves you in spite of the fact that you're here in a penal colony. And God sent Christ to take away our sins. Look to Christ in faith and you'll receive the forgiveness of your sins. And you'll know that nothing will ever separate you from the love of God. You see what a difference there is between the contract God and the triune God of love. And yet, as I'll seek to show in, in my lectures to you, that that concept of the contract God is very wide and rampant right across our, 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 West, our, our Western world. God's love is unconditionally free. Secondly, therefore, God's love is a reconciling love. If there's one word which more than any other sums up the deepest need of our day, I think it is this word reconciliation. That's the problem in Kosovo, in Northern Ireland, in the Middle East, far and wide. Reconciliation in the struggles for justice and for liberty. And yet if there's one word which more than any other sums up the heart of the Christian gospel, it is the same word that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. <coughs> what is Reconciliation. Well, to reconcile, I take it, is to restore to friendship, to unity, to harmony, to communion, two people or two neighbors who've been estranged from one another, to break down the barriers of injustice and prejudice and guilt which divide people from one another and which divide people from God, to break down that middle wall of partition which separates us from God, from one another, to take away the guilt that divides people from God, Jew, Gentile, man, woman, 
the guilt that tears our society apart, to make us one body in Christ, one with God, one with one another, one at the Lord's table. And it's that reconciling love which is held out to us in Jesus Christ. The New Testament word to reconcile is a beautiful Greek word, as you know. It's the word katalasain, and the noun katalage, which can be translated either reconciliation or atonement. Katalasain. And it means quite literally in the Greek to buy something or someone, to effect an exchange. If you go into a shop to buy something, you give a shopkeeper money and you get goods in exchange. To buy something is to bring about an exchange. Now, it was that same word that came to mean to reconcile. For to reconcile is to restore to friendship or unity two people or two parties who become estranged from one another by exchanging love for hatred, friendship for enmity, forgiveness for wrong received. You see, that is the significance of the truth and reconciliation movement in South Africa, where the blacks are saying to the whites, we forgive you, but we ask you to accept that forgiveness and repentance and submit to the verdict of your guilt. They've seen the political relevance of evangelical repentance. And you see, that's what Jesus came to do. He went all the way to the cross to take our hatred to himself, to give us love in exchange, to take our enmity to himself, to give us friendship in exchange, to take our sins to himself, to give us righteousness in exchange, to take our death to himself, to give us eternal life in exchange. That, says the Apostle, is what God has done for us in Christ in purchasing our redemption. God was in Christ reconciling the world, taking away our enmity, restoring peace. And how has he done it? By effecting a most wonderful exchange. For he made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. God's love is a reconciling love. Thirdly, one last thought. You and I, therefore, are summoned to love one another and to forgive one another with the same kind of covenant love with which God in Christ has loved us. Listen to John, the apostle of love. God is love, and herein is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, so ought we to love one another freely, unconditionally, accepting one another as God and Christ has accepted us. Think again of the story of Zacchaeus in Luke's Gospel. You remember Zacchaeus was presented to us as a tax gatherer who so cheated the people and defrauded them that he hated him. The people just hated the very name of Zacchaeus. But one day, Zacchaeus heard that Jesus was coming past. He wanted to see him. And so you remember, because he was a little fellow, he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to look over the top of the crowds to see Jesus. Jesus went right up to the bottom of that tree and stopped and looked, looked up. What did Jesus say to him? Did Jesus say to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus, <clears throat> you're an evil man. You've been defrauding these people. You've been cheating them. They hate you. You've been dishonest in your dealings. And only if you admit it and say you're sorry and repent of it will I come into your home. 
Did Jesus say that? The crowds would have loved it if he had. Oh, boy, he's getting now what he deserves. No, he did not. He said, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down. Today I must abide with you. I'm coming into your home. Zacchaeus could hardly believe his ears. He made haste. He came home. Uh, 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 and he received Jesus joyfully. But the crowds murmured that Jesus had gone to be a guest with a man that was a sinner. Was Jesus condoning his guilt? Was Jesus saying only if this reparation can be acceptance? Not at all. When Zacchaeus knew that he was loved and forgiven, what was the result? He said, Lord, half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I've taken anything, I will restore it fullfold. Yes, there was reparation, not as a condition of forgiveness, but as a response to the love of Jesus. And Jesus said, today is salvation come to this house. You see, that is evangelical repentance, not legal repentance. The story of the Bible and it's the story of the human heart in all ages. It's a story of how again and again people have tried to turn God's covenant into a contract. For example, in the Old Testament, the word of God came to Israel at Mount Sinai. I am the God of Abram and of Isaac and of Jacob. I've loved you. I've redeemed you. You're my people. Therefore, keep my commandments. But you see, so often the Jews turned it the other way around. They said, if you keep the Ten Commandments, God will love you. If you keep the Sabbath, the kingdom of God will come. If you carry the yoke of the Torah, God will be gracious to you. And so they made the joyful religion of Israel into what Jesus called a yoke, grievous to be born. They turned the covenant into a contract. You see, love's, God's love always brings its obligations, its unconditional obligations. But the obligations of love are not conditions of love. I have a son called Alan. He teaches theology in King's College in London. Now, Alan is, is passionately fond of music. He's a very talented violinist. Now, let's suppose that long ago, when he was a young boy, just beginning music, I go to Alan and I say, Alan, your mom and I are going to give you a violin for your birthday. And I can imagine the enormous excitement. He can't wait for his birthday to come because we've promised to give him a violin, his dream. But then I suppose a day or two later, I come down and I say, Alan, you know that violin we talked about? Well, listen, your mum and I will give you that if you help us weed the garden and cut the grass, or if you help me wash the car. And I impose conditions. What would he say? He'd say, Daddy, you've broken your promise. You promised to give me that. And he would be absolutely right. That if after I'd promised and then I imposed conditions, I would have broken my promise. It would no longer be a free gift, but something merited as a reward. That is precisely Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3. God gave his promises to Abraham in the covenant of grace. 430 years later came the law to spell out the unconditional obligations of the covenant, not to impose conditions, as the Judaizers were saying, only if you're circumcised will God be gracious to you. They were turning the covenant into a contract. No, says Paul. God gave us promises, and they're unconditionally free. 
But God's love always brings its unconditional obligations to worship, to pray, to read the Bible, to take up our cross and to follow Christ, to repent, to believe, to be baptized. But the obligations of grace, the unconditional obligations of grace, are not conditions of grace. Oh, of course, it's possible for people to trample under feet the blood of the covenant and sin against God's grace, to sin against the Holy Spirit, to be like those foolish people who are delivered to destruction for denying the Lord who bought them to be like the foolish virgins. But remember, God's grace is free grace. He's the triune God of love, the triune God of grace. And his promises are held out to us in Jesus Christ to be received by faith, not by works. This was the great message of the Reformation. And to as many as received him in faith and repentance, he gives the wonderful gift of loving communion. You see, our God, the triune God of love, is a covenant covenant God, not a contract God. And thank God. Now unto him who loved us and bought us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory for ever and ever. Amen. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, BeesonDivinity.com. Beeson Divinity School is an interdenominational evangelical divinity school training men and women in the service of Jesus Christ. We pray that this podcast will aid and encourage your work, and we hope you will listen to each upcoming edition of the Beeson Podcast.